Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. Congratulations to those who graduated yesterday, and congratulations maybe even more to you teachers who are still standing and alive after this past school year of going back and forth between in-person and online. Praise God for our teachers. We're thankful for you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're finishing up this chapter. Lincoln, brother, it's good to have you with us, man. We miss you. We're so thankful for your work. You have great hair. Now, this, this young man, is he's in the middle of uh, really the mouth of the dragon. And uh, one thing you might do at the end of this service is just find Lincoln and find out ways that you might encourage him, um, come alongside him, just be in constant contact with him. We live in a post-Christian world. Not that the world ever was Christian in a sense. We're, we're always fighting this, this battle of two kingdoms. That's been the case since Genesis 3. But in the sense of a kind of cultural acceptance and a willingness to be open to the truths of the Scripture, we have crested the hill. And Lincoln is in a very, very uh, challenging portion of our culture. And so we're grateful for you, brother. Our text this morning as we finish John chapter 4 is just a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's, a, it's maybe a well-known story in John. I'll summarize it before we work through it a few verses at a time. Jesus has just finished up his interaction with the woman at the well, in, the Samaritan woman at the well, and that has resulted in her going back to her village and witnessing to her whole village and bringing the vast majority of the people in her town to faith in Jesus. And now at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is going to return to Galilee where he turned the water into wine and he is going to come across this official, this nobleman, this man of the sort of upper rungs of society whose son was sick. And this, man's, this man is coming to Jesus, and he's asking Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus is going to heal his son with just a word. And this is going to be the, the, the third sign, really, of, of the gospel of John. And the gospel of John is, is a kind of evangelistic track. It's, it's really, that's the purpose of John. At the end of John, the, John says that I have written this that you might believe in Jesus. And so unlike the synoptic gospels, which is a word that means seeing together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is arranged differently than those other three gospels. It's arranged around these seven signs of Jesus and the seven I am statements of Jesus. And it's a kind of, if you think of it this way, a kind of great greatest hits where John is compiling all of the best evidences in his mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
to present Jesus so that people would believe in him, as opposed to the other Gospels that are more detailing the chronological history of Jesus' life and ministry. Before we dig into this passage, it's going to deal with this sign of the healing of this nobleman's son. But I want us to understand, because the real rub, the real crux of this passage is what Jesus is doing, what his purpose is in this sign and in the signs, the seven signs that John records in his gospel. So if we zoom out for a bit, we see in the Old Testament that God has always been using his servants to bring about miraculous signs. We think about the Old Testament, obviously, the the plagues that God worked through Moses' hand to to, uh, warn Egypt, to warn Pharaoh, to let his people go. And those were miraculous signs, the plagues that came. And then obviously, this great miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. But the signs in the Old Testament aren't always miraculous. Sometimes they're mundane. In fact, there's this really interesting sign in the middle of the uh, book of Isaiah where God calls the prophet Isaiah as a witness, as a sign against the enemies of God's people He calls Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against God's enemies. Now, the next time you complain about something the Lord has called you to do to obey him, just remember he hasn't called you to walk naked for three years as he did Isaiah. But nevertheless, signs in the Old Testament are given by God to authenticate the message of the prophet, to warn the enemies of Israel, and to comfort God's people. And the purpose of signs in the book of John, the gospel of John, are are very similar. They are more centered, though, this time on the ministry of Jesus. And so we can think of the signs that we have already seen in in John's gospel and that we will see today and that we will encounter in the coming weeks. These signs are given to authenticate and to reveal the glory of Jesus, and as a consequence of that, to ultimately cause people to believe in him. But, and I want you to notice this, I want to give you a tip before we work through this passage, that there's this kind of, this tension here in this sign. Jesus, in the middle of this story, before he actually performs the healing, performs the sign, scolds the people for actually looking for a sign, even though the sign is something that he's going to do for his purposes of causing them to believe. And so we don't need to wrestle with the purposes of God in that. Well, let me pray, and then let's work through this text. And as we work through this text, I see four truths that I want to unfold for us as we go through it. Lord, help us as we look at your word. Thank you for our brother Lincoln. Lord, we join with Springer's prayers that you would use him and go before him and use this camp in July to just bring about truth and grace in difficult places in our culture. Lord, as we look at this text, as we open our Bibles freely, as we think about our upcoming summer, we remember our brothers and sisters all around the world who are in dire straits. Think of our brothers and sisters in India that are dealing with the severe outbreak of the virus and significant government persecution. Lord, we we pray for strength and grace, protection for them. And Lord, shake us from our lethargy, 
as we open up our Bibles, as we lean forward into your truth, do your work through this time in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, there's some controversy about what Jesus is referring to there. Not controversy, but just thought, some confusion maybe through the centuries. Is he talking about his hometown as Nazareth or Jerusalem? Is he referring to the greater Galilean area? What does Jesus mean there? Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but we do see this principle come up in the Gospels and other places. And I think this is true in this case is that Jesus, there's a kind of familiarity that Jesus had in his hometown where people missed him. They didn't see him for who he truly was. He continues, John continues in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And what that feast is referring to is the time when Jesus cleansed, he cleared the temple, and he chased the money changers who were there defiling the temple. And so John here is just giving us a kind of setup. He's, he's showing us the attitude of the Galileans. They, they are welcoming Jesus, but, but there seems to be an implication that their motivation was their own self-interest because John is pointing us back to this time where they saw him do this great work. And so it's almost as if he's tipping us off to the mindset of the Galileans, which Jesus is going to scold in a moment, that they're merely looking for Jesus and what he can do for him. It's kind of like, hey, the miracle worker is here. Jesus is here. What can Jesus do for us? He's here, the one who fixes our problems. The application for us as we just continue on in this is that Jesus is not here merely to be a pragmatic helper and solver of our temporary problems. He can't be morphed into just the meter of our needs, but he has come to save our souls and secure our eternity with him. So let's keep reading. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official, some versions say a royal official or a nobleman. It's a very important man in the society. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Let's pause there, and I, I think we see in, in this opening scene here, the first truth that I want us to, to see in this passage is that suffering comes to us all. None of us are untouched by trial and affliction in this world. We see this man who's in the upper crust of society. And it's, it's a witness, it's a warning to us that suffering comes for all of us, no matter our station in life. And, and as, as we look at this and we see this, this nobleman, this important official, maybe this wealthy man whose son was sick, there's sometimes two ways we react to this. Sometimes, maybe as we look at this and maybe, maybe we're a little bit lower in the social ring, we, we might look at this and we might revel as we see people above us that deal with trials. And if, if there's something in us that 
that sort of takes a little bit of secret inward joy when somebody in high position is knocked down a peg or two. That's just wicked. That's just wicked. But conversely, if we are of some sort of social standing or maybe some worldly comfort or wealth, if we then translate and think that we are somehow insulated from the trials of the world because of what we have or because of where we are or our station in life, that's idolatry. And by the way, the Bible does not condemn wealth or poverty. It's, it's part of life in this world. I think as we look at this and we see this nobleman who has come, this official, this royal official, it's a warning to us that, that we are all in this together. Suffering touches us all and we need one another. God has designed the community of the local church that we would live together and that we wouldn't trust in ourselves or in our resources, but we would trust in the Lord and we would work that out in life together. The human heart is an idol factory. Be on guard against your idols. And this man has been humbled, and he has come to Jesus, and he has come desperate. And at some point in all of our lives, we will come to Jesus desperate. In verse 48, look at how Jesus responds to him. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now what's interesting about this is the you there in verse 48 is plural. So Jesus is not just speaking to this nobleman, this official. He's speaking to the whole town. He's speaking to all the people that are there. And this is interesting. This is a bit of a tension in this text because clearly this healing is ordained by the Lord. And we see at the end of John that he has done these things so that we might believe. And we see John's gospel arranged around these seven signs. And so we know that, that Jesus is wanting to do this, but yet here he seems to scold the desire in the people for signs and wonders as if that's the only thing that they're looking for and they won't believe unless they have them or see them. So what is Jesus saying here? After all, he's the one who's bringing the signs in order that people will believe. What's Jesus's critique here? I think his critique is this idea that all of us are prone to where we, we, we focus on what Jesus can give us in the moment. We focus on what Jesus can do for us. The sign is meant to point us beyond the sign to the thing it's pointing to, which is Christ. And I think that's what Jesus is critiquing here. You're just looking for a solver of your temporal problems and not the one that the sign is pointing to. Now look at the official's response to Jesus' scold. I love this. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, I love this because we see in this man this tenacity, this this grit 
Jesus scolds him a little bit. He scolds the whole crowd. But what does the man do? He's undeterred. He presses in. And obviously, as we read through this story, we understand in retrospect that God is ordaining all of this for this man's response to Jesus to be a kind of picture of what Jesus is wanting to draw out of all of us when we face similar trials. And so instead of having his feelings hurt, instead of, instead of turning in on himself, this man presses into Jesus and like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Maybe my motives aren't right, but sir, come down before my child dies. This, this man's posture reminds me of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 that we looked at a couple years ago. It's just a standalone message, and there's this woman in Matthew 15 She's a Canaanite Gentile woman, and she comes to Jesus, and she, it's a similar situation. She needs healing for her daughter, I think, and, and, and Jesus says, I've, 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 only come, I've come primarily for the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, just kind of get away from me, you, 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 you Gentile. And, and she presses him, and he, he, he says that I, you know, he, he basically, this is, this is the, the, take this in, Jesus basically calls this woman a dog. And he says that, you know, that, that I've come for the lost, I don't, don't, you can't eat the scraps off the master's table. I, I've, come for, I've come for the sheep, not, not you Canaanite dogs, is basically what he tells this woman. And the woman says to Jesus, yeah, but even the dogs can eat scraps from the master's table. And she presses in. She's not offended. She, she doesn't bounce around from church to church because she wasn't treated perfectly. She presses in to Jesus, just like this man here. Jesus has basically just scolded him, and he's like, okay, I got you, but please come down. There's a tenacity in this man. And this leads us to the second truth here that, that I think I, is just so critical for us to see, and it is that God uses suffering for our good. God uses suffering for our good. This, listen, notice this. This father would not have come to Jesus and eventually believe in Jesus, as we'll see, except for the illness of his son. Later on in John chapter 6, when we get to it in a few weeks, we'll read where Jesus is saying to the crowd that all that the father gives me will come to me, that we are drawn by God. And we need to factor this trial and this suffering, this sickness of this son, as part of God's ordained means by which he is drawing this man. This is the means by which God is using, it's part of the process that the Holy Spirit has ordained to bring this man to God. Yes, the temporal thing is that this child will be healed, but eventually this child will die just like every other human being. Something more significant is going on here. God is using the temporary suffering of this man's son for the eternal good of his soul and his eventual household. It reminds me of, I think, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes of all time. Spurgeon said in his little book, All of Grace, which is just a compilation of some of his sermons, and he says that Jesus often rides to the doorsteps of our hearts on the black horse of affliction to wean us from the world and woo us 
to himself. I think that's true. I think Charles Spurgeon is right. But let's not believe it just because Charles Spurgeon said it. Let's believe it because it's the testimony of Scripture. Listen to Romans 8.28, one of the favorite verses of Christians throughout the centuries. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So friends, that is the most comprehensive of all statements in the Bible. It is saying that everything that happens to you must and has passes through his fatherly hand and he arranges it for your good. Even the sickness and the suffering and the trial and the worst of tragedies. Now this is a great mystery which we cannot fully understand and piece together from this side of eternity because the Bible is clear that God is not in any way culpable of evil or sin, but he is sovereign over it and he has providential purposes in even allowing it to come to pass and he is so good and so kind and so sovereign that even before time began, he determined to use the worst thing that happened to his saints to bring about their good. And that is good news. This is how the Apostle Paul summarizes this truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look again at verse 17. It says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing. It's the thing that's doing the preparing. And what is this affliction preparing for us? The eternal weight of glory. So it's as if the master carpenter, God himself, is using the chisel, the anvil of our afflictions, and he's using it as a tool to actually bring about our good. And that's what's going on in the life of this father. And that's what's going on in your life if you're a believer. Back to the text. Let's look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now, I think verse 50 is the, is the heart of this text. When, when you're studying the Bible, just something that maybe a, a kind of tip for how to study passages, especially scenes like this in the gospel, look for the spine, the very heart of the text. And I think this, this verse is the very heart of the text. In verse 48, Jesus has scolded this man and this whole city for what seems to be their attitude of coming to Jesus merely to make things work out for them. Jesus answers the prayer of this man in verse 50. He answers the request of this man. And then this man, not yet actually seeing that what Jesus has said has come to pass, There's a transformation between the period at the end of the sentence, go, your son will live, and the next word, the man believed the word. There's there's work in this man's heart. This man has transitioned from looking at Jesus merely from what he could do for him in this life to trusting in his word. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him without any evidence of fruition, and he went on his way. Which think, brings us to this, this tr- the third truth that I think is the heart of this text, is that we can take Jesus at his word. This is the heart of the scene. The progression of the father's trust in Jesus. He went looking for his son to be healed, which is not a bad thing. But he comes away trusting in Jesus on a much greater level. This is what the scriptures say about this type of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This man didn't see his son yet, but he, there's a work. Something happened in his heart. He came with an immediate need, and he, he walked away trusting Jesus for an eternity. He's, he's, he's trusting in something that he hasn't seen yet. And this is where most of the Christian life is lived, between his word and the fulfillment of his word. Philippians 1.6 says that I'm sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In other words, we, we live in this kind of tension bet- between where we know what Jesus has done for us. We, we, in a sense, look back to the cross. We have the benefit that this nobleman, this official, did not have. He's, he's trusting Jesus at his word without the cross. But we have this written account of the work of Jesus finally fully accomplished. And so when we read this word, we can look back and we look at our lives. It might be in chaos. We, we look at the sin that we are still struggling with and we can look to the cross and we can know that what Paul says is true, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And we can know that because Jesus has laid down his life on the cross and has borne the punishment for our sin and has risen again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and has called us from death to life and has given us eyes to believe as we've prayed for several times and has made us alive, we can know that he will do what he says. He will bring us all the way home. You will be finally and fully victorious over that thing that you are struggling with now. Everything that is against you right now, every trial, every temptation, every moment of suffering, every affliction will somehow, in some way, be used by God to bring you to this final point of joy in Him. That's the promise of Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now listen, look at the last part of that sentence. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are living in between the last four words of that verse. Those whom he justified, past tense, that means that he has taken your sin, he has removed it as far as the east is from the west. He's put it on Jesus on the cross. He's given you a new heart. He's given you faith so that you can trust in Jesus. You've been justified. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been adopted into the family of God. 
As John Ildis prayed earlier, the Spirit of God indwells you now. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing will snatch you from his hand, according to Jesus in John 10. You've been justified, you've been sealed, and you're now living this life. And you are waiting for, listen, you're living in between justification and glorification. And look at though the last four words of verse 30 of Romans 8. Those whom he justified... He also glorified. Well, our glorification is still awaiting in the future, but Paul is speaking of it with such certainty that he can speak of it in the past tense. That's good news. And we can trust him for that word. We are living in the tension of Jesus saying, go, live, I've done it, and seeing that finally fully come to pass in our lives. That's where we are, every single one of us. And we can take him at his word. So we look to the cross, we look to the future, and we rest in his present work. One one more verse before we hurry on to encourage us. I've long been fascinated with this verse in Hebrews, and someday, Lord willing, we'll we'll preach through Hebrews. But listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, verse 14. I, I think this is one of those verses that explains the Christian life so succinctly and so helpfully. He says, for by a single offering, that's referring to Christ's work on the cross, for by a single offering, he has perfected past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified. So that means that you are in God's eyes through the finished work of Christ, if you are in him perfected, but yet you are still in the process of being sanctified. So you are becoming, I know this is grammatically incorrect for you you English teachers out there, but you are You are becoming who you already are in Christ if you're a Christian. And that's where we live. We have to take Jesus at his word. Go, your son will live. And we believe the word that Jesus spoke to us. And we go on our way knowing that he can be trusted. Well, let's hurry on and finish verses 51 through 54. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he, meaning the official, asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So what what was the end result of this son's sickness? Not merely his physical healing, but the belief of this father and the salvation of all of his household. Which brings us to this final and fourth truth that I want us to see is that his word, very simply, Jesus' word, brings life. This is the purpose of this sign. Not merely to show us that Jesus has the power to heal sickness. Yes and amen. A thousand times yes. 
but on a far greater level to display the power of his word which brings life. When Jesus says live, it is done. So what's the application before we see the power of Jesus' word life-giving word displayed for us in this baptismal testimony of the sister who's a new member of our church. What's the application for us? Put yourself under this life-giving word. Listen to his word. Obey his word. Trust his word. Take him at his word. He can be trusted. Well, you're about to hear a wonderful testimony of God's grace in the life of a young lady who's a new member of Crosspoint. And you will see through her testimony the power of this word that can bring life and can be trusted. Let me pray. Lord, as we consider this text, I know there are people in this room who, and certainly all of us in various times in our life, who are prone to take the immediate needs of our situation and and just make life all about that. But yet, Lord, you're so gracious. You point us beyond the sign. You point us beyond your work for us in the moment. You point us beyond getting us out of temporary situations to your word that brings life. Lord, you have given us so many signs in our life. You've given us your word. You've given us the ultimate sign, the cross and the resurrection. Lord, would we look to that and would we, we know that we can trust you and take you at your word. And that you alone have the words of life. And now, Lord, as we see our sister proclaim the gospel in her union with Christ through her baptism, may it stir hearts. May it it prick hearts. May it be used to bring glory to your name. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.